A question from Greg McPherson. Is it necessary to have 100% passion for the subject you are writing? Do you think it would come through in your writing if that passion was not there? And do you have a basic knowledge of the subject you are writing, or can you acquire it during the research stage of writing? Let's divide that up into two parts. The first is about passion or enthusiasm. And what I would say is it's not necessary to have 100% enthusiasm. What is necessary, the term I like to use is I'm able to get temporarily enthusiastic about any product for which I'm going to write copy on. It has to interest you enough that you can become engaged and become the advocate for that client. It's like an attorney. An attorney may take on the client and forget the issue of guilt and innocence. He's not crazy about the person, but it's his job to be the advocate for that client, and so he shouldn't take it on if he can't do that job. For me to do that job, I have to become temporarily enthusiastic about the product, which for me isn't hard, and if I can't do that because it's something I don't like or I loathe, then I wouldn't take it on. A good example is a publisher approached me a few years years ago and said, we need a bunch of direct mail packages. That was a really good possible assignment. And I said, what about? And he said, we have a series of books on hunting. Why well, don't hunt? I'm not telling you if you hunt, you're wrong or it's a bad thing. But for me, it has no appeal and I dislike it. So I had to turn it down. There's no way I could get enthusiastic about that. If you gave me the job of promoting a book or a magazine on vegetarianism, I'm not a vegetarian, but I could get temporarily enthusiastic about that idea. There's a lot that appeals to me about it. Do you have to know about the topic? Yes and no. You really don't have to know and you can research it. That being said, remember we talked earlier about the 80-20 rule, 80% 80 of your assignments are repeat business? Yes. If you follow that, then you're kind of writing mostly about stuff you're somewhat familiar with. I take it further and even though 20% is not the repeat business, of that 20%, most of it is in product areas that I have some experience in. I do a lot of stuff in IT, so if a guy comes at me and needs a brochure on a certain software package, I may never have done any software in that industry, but I've done similar things so I know how software should be sold. Here's a question from Andrew Kavanaugh. Is there really more copywriting work than current competent copywriters in the market could handle, or is that just hype designed to sell copywriting courses? I worried about this for a long time, and I was concerned that those of us who are teaching others to do this, me through my books, for example, are we flooding the market and creating too many copywriters? I would say that, in my opinion, no but. And that means, no, there's not too many copywriters because there's so much work out there. In the United States, there are over 10 million businesses. And if you take the small portion of that, the tip of the iceberg, the big companies produce tons of material. And so they have a large demand or need for copy. Having said that, not every company needs copy. So you may run into individual companies or even individual market niches where the opportunity doesn't seem so great. So you may have to fan out to other businesses or other niches or other industries. But overall, I think the answer is no. We have not flooded the market for copywriters yet, though we are heading slowly in that direction. I don't know that we could ever reach that, but I think it's a valid concern. Okay. He also says, with all the great copywriting courses sold on the market, including your own, why do you think there are so few really good copywriters coming out of these courses? I actually don't think that there's so few copywriters coming out of these courses. But remember we talked about Michael Masterson, who created what is probably the biggest course in the market, the AWAI, American Writers and Artists Institute, 
six-figure copywriting course, he says you have to do something for a thousand hours to get competent and five thousand hours to be a master. And there are a lot of people out there who are not willing to put in that practice and don't, in fact, follow what they're taught to do in the course. They don't follow through. They don't do the assignments. Masterson in his program will say, here's a great promotion. I want you to copy this sales letter word for word. And it's an eight-page sales letter. 99.9% .9 of the students never do it. So one reason there are not so many great copywriters is they don't follow the instructions. They don't follow the courses. And the more relevant reason is they don't put in the time required to become a master at it. On that subject, copying out sales letter in longhand, do you believe in that? I mean, is that something that you think is a good exercise for copywriters? And how do you think it helps one? I haven't done it a lot, but I have done it. And I think it is a helpful exercise. I find that to copy a 24-page or a 36-page magalog, it's too much. What I will do, though, and I have done, is copy the leads of great sales letters. Like there's a classic four-page or eight-page sales letter to sell psychology today or Newsweek. What I do is I don't copy the whole thing. I read the whole thing carefully several times. I probably copy the lead, which is the first half of page one or all of page one, but then I outline the rest. This is more useful to me. I break it down so I say, okay, first we discuss the product in this type of letter. Then we discuss the sense-off. Then we get to the objections. Then we go to testimonials. Then we get to the articles that are published. Then we go back to some testimonials. I look for letter models within these controls that I can knock off or duplicate for other clients. Okay, here's a question from Sherry Fields. Bob, do you believe headlines have to be outrageous to catch the reader's attention? For example, how a broke, homeless 28-year-old learned to earn millions? It depends on the market niche and in the industry. And my simple answer is I don't think they have to be outrageous or absurd. I do think they have to make a fairly big promise. Now, what she means by outrageous is it's a little crazy, it's a little goofy. Like how a one-eyed sailor smoking a corncob pipe learns health secrets of living to 100. That works. You don't have to go in that direction. Clayton Makepeace, in one issue of his total package, gave an example of a headline that was enormously successful for a nutritional supplement based on the concept of improving vision. What was the old thing? He's supposed to eat carrots to see better or something. And the writer's headline, it wasn't his copy, was why Bilberry and Luton don't work. It's not outrageous, but it was so effective, he said, because people getting these promotions have read 8,000 of these promotions where they've been told Luton, Bilberry are the key ingredients, and they probably ordered some of the products, and they probably didn't work. So that's going to grab you. You can start with where the prospect is, you know, the classic Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. That's not outrageous. I'll answer more concisely. The answer is no. You don't have to be outrageous, but yes, you do have to make or imply a big promise. What are two of the most important rules for a headline that you would advise a copywriter to keep in mind? And two most important rules. One of them is that you have to understand what the purpose and what you want your headline to do. And headlines can have a number of functions, but the main two are to get attention and draw the reader further into the copy. So when you're looking at a headline, you want to ask yourself, if I was the prospect, would this stop me? Not would it get me to buy the product, that's the wrong question, but would it stop me? Would it get me to stop and catch my attention? The second question you want to ask is, 
assuming it stopped me, okay, I've read it, would it compel me to read further? Would it draw me into the body copy? And so those are the two most important rules. You have to write something that's going to get their attention, and you have to write something that's going to, if it's direct marketing, draw them into the body copy. These rules don't necessarily apply to other types of advertising, you know, like consumer advertising for packaged goods. Often there is no body copy, or the body copy is very minimal. So in that case, you might have a headline that, and this is another function a headline can perform, is some headlines just deliver a complete selling message. Just to come up with an example of one that delivers a complete selling message, Crest toothpaste. It used to be caught early enough, using Crest can actually stop and reverse tooth decay in 80% of children or something like that. That's the whole message. It doesn't really compel me terribly to read on, although, you know, I might want to know how, but it's not that compelling. It's not even that powerfully tension-getting, but the main thing it does, it tells me the complete story. So if I just read that, I get it. Versus a more direct response headline, Duncan Hines used to run ads for years for their chocolate cake mix, and the headline was, The Secret to Richer Moisture Chocolate Cake. That lures me into the body copy. It sounds like it's promising to reveal some useful information. That's the difference. Can you think of a case study from one of your clients where you crafted a headline that just smashed a previous control? Well, I've done it, obviously, like anybody who's been writing copy for any length of time has done this, so you wouldn't be in business. But if I can pick one specific one, I had a client approach me, and they had a product. You know what a daytimer is? Yeah. So everybody knows what a daytimer is, and this was a product that was one of the daytimer knockoffs, of which there were several. So they had a direct mail package that had been their control for many years. Their headline was, how many times have you told yourself, quote, next week, I'm going to get organized, unquote, which I thought was pretty good. I wrote a headline that was as follows, inside, colon, now you can get at least one more hour of productive time each day than daytimer or other planning systems can give you, guaranteed. And that headline beat theirs by 50%. And that's a good example of something that was specifically crafted to beat a control, as we direct response copywriters do. If there's an existing promotion, we look to see how we can beat the control. All right, well, this kind of brings me to testing. What's your take on testing? I mean, obviously, you don't have the luxury of spending a year on a client's project to test all different variables, headline, body copy, offer, things like that. So you're limited with your time, but how do you use that time limitation and use testing to benefit your client's copy that you write for them? What's your take on that? Well, offline, in print, specifically direct mail, typically the client is testing my package versus, if it's any client of any size or sophistication, they're testing my package versus their control. So the only test that's being done is a split test of mine. If it's a client that does not have a control or is not that sophisticated, then in direct mail, because of the time and expense, most clients do very limited testing. So I'll say, let's test the most important thing. And that may not be the headline or the creative. If a client is introducing a new product, I might say the biggest variable with this is the price. And I'd say the first thing we need to test, and that usually is the most important thing you should test. Well, first you test lists. That's a given. But in terms of the actual package, it would be probably price. Should we sell this newsletter on commodities trading for $99 a year, $199, or $299? We do a three-way split, and if $299 works, then we do another A-B split of $299 versus $399. And as you know from your own experience, surprisingly, this shocks beginners and shocked me when I started. The low price often doesn't win. And so you have to test to find which price point is most profitable. The other thing you would want to test is the offer. 
I had a guy talk to me today. He sells a membership in a professional society for technical people. He said, well, right now we charge 200 or $300 a year for membership. And the question is, well, should they pay $300 for a one-year membership? Should he give them a 30-day trial period? Should he give them the option of quarterly payments, monthly payments? That's going to make a huge difference. So pricing an offer, that's what I test first. Once I had done enough testing to say I have the right offer and the right price, then I would do creative testing. And the two most important things there in direct mail are the headline or the outer envelope teaser and the lead to the piece, the lead and the headline. And number two, the format. Should I test a jumbo envelope versus a snack pack versus a number 10? So format and lead slash headline are the most important creative elements. Overall, it's price and offer. Online, it's a different story. There are systems now, you're probably familiar with the term Taguchi testing, which will allow you to test multiple elements of a sales letter online, and these tests will allow you to test many permutations. So at minimum, you can do an AB or ABC split test of the landing page headline, but really you can test five or six elements. You can test headline, you can test placement of the letterhead on the first screen. You can test the picture. Let's say you're selling an audio CD program. Is it better to show the author a picture of the CD product in its case or a woman or a man enjoying the benefits of the product? That can make a huge difference. I saw a test recently where this guy, the only thing he changed was the color of his order button. And he split test a traditional bright red order button versus an orange order button. And the orange beat the other by 27%. Have you used any of the Taguchi stuff? I don't get involved in that. I have clients that do online testing, but I certainly know where you can go get it, and I certainly recommend to people that they do that. Normally, if they're doing it, the only element that I'd be asked to provide is three or four different headlines. In terms of the placement of the logo or the picture, the client will do that without me. Do you have any feedback on offers that are pay nothing now and your card will be billed in 30 days? I guess that's the difference between a soft offer and a hard offer. Well, the traditional hard offer is you give me your credit card now and we'll start your subscription. If you don't like it, you let me know within 30 days, within 60 days, within 90 days, whatever the terms of the no-risk trial period are, and we will refund your money in full. But you've already paid. The soft offer is traditionally send no money now, we will bill you later. Return the form, fill in the form, submit the form online, and we'll start your service, and we'll send you a bill in the mail, and if you don't want it, you just mark cancel on the bill and send it back, so you haven't paid. What you're talking about is a hybrid, which is basically you pay online with a credit card, and yes, you must enter your credit card online to get the product, but they don't charge you the price of the product for 30 days. This is a very old technique. You know Joe Carbo, right? Yeah. He wrote The Lazy Man's Way to Riches with a subhead of most people are too busy earning a living to make any money, and he did it with checks before the Internet. His coupon, if you remember, said, Joe, you may be full of beans, but what have I got to lose? Here's my check, and I understand you won't cash it for 90 days, and if I don't like your program, I'll return it, and you'll rip up my check. We do that now online and I have one client that sells books that way. The way it is, you put in your credit card, and he charges your credit card for the $7 or the $6 shipping and handling, which is non-refundable. And then he sends you the book. And you have 30 or 90 days, whatever his terms are. And if you send it back before then, they never charge you for the rest. If you don't send it back, 
30 days later or whenever it is, the charge for the $50 cover price of the book goes through. And that works very well. Okay. Here's a question from Wayne B. out of Australia. Bob, when building value for the product being sold in a sales letter by making out it's worth $7,000, but I'm selling it for $397, what's the best way to tell the reason why it's being sold for so much less than the value amount? Well, a better way, and not all products lend themselves to this, but there are several ways to establish value. I call it, and this is not original to me, do you know Mike Pavlish at all? I know the name. Yeah, he's a well-known copywriter, and he wrote a report years ago where he used the term the drop-in-the-bucket technique, which is what I've stolen from him. And it means when you say add value, what I think of it, you have to show that the price you're asking is a drop-in-the-bucket compared to the value the reader is getting. You remember Don Dupree on TV, the infomercial guy? Yes. He used this technique, and we call it the infomercial technique. He was selling a report or a course on how to be in the mail order business with tiny classified ads. And then later on, I think he showed you how to do a website. But uh, you started with classified ads. And he said, okay, so here's what you get. First, you get my guide how to make money with classified ads. And there'd be a picture of this report on the screen with a nice cover, and it would say $39 on it. And you get my list of the 200 best newspapers to advertise in, my newspaper guide, and that would be $49. Then you get my guide how to get free publicity, and that's $59. Then you get my guide how to write a great classified ad for $29. And there'd be like 10 guides, and they all said 39 and 40 and you add them up, and it was 700 bucks. But he said, I'm going to give it to you now for only $49. So it looks like you're getting this incredible bargain. And that's much easier to do when you have a product that you break up into components. Because if you just had one product, you said it normally sells for 7000 but I'm going to give it to you for 300 that doesn't quite make sense. Although there's ways around it, and I'll tell you what those are in a minute. And then I actually ordered Don's product. I don't know if you ordered it. Sure, I ordered it. So you remember, you would get the 10 guides, and when you stack them up, they were much thinner than an ordinary trade paperback book at the bookstore you could get for $20. It was just packaging, but it's smart packaging. The packaging of an information product in different ways can allow you to charge different prices. You want to charge more? If you want to be like a Don Dupree, throw in a DVD. Videos have a much higher perceived value than books. Throw in a piece of software, even if it's shareware or free utilities. Software has a perceived value of $50 to $100, $200. So that's another way that you can make the price seem like a drop in the bucket. The other way to do it is to show that your product can make or save them 10 times the money that they're paid. I once did an ad for this product. It was for landlords, and it reduced the heating and cooling costs in apartment buildings. And it was $50,000 to install it or something like that. And we said, on the first year alone, you'll save in heating and cooling costs twice what you paid for it, or we'll give you your money back because these were big apartment buildings. I don't remember if it was really 50000 Whatever it was, it was very expensive, though. We call it low total cost of ownership, great ROI, that it'll pay back its cost in two months or three months. It's the old Jay Abraham thing. If I give you a dollar, will you give me a quarter? Here's a question from Oliver Lim. With the advent of online companies like Elance, which encourages copywriters bidding out each other to get the deal, the average price companies pay right now for copywriting jobs is around 250 to $500. What special niche should I endeavor to get business at a higher price? Well, here's the thing. You never, ever go to any of these job sites like Elance and bid on their jobs. Buyers who go to Elance, they're looking for a low price. And there is, in every service, in every product, in every niche, price buyers. Those are the people you don't want to deal with. Through your marketing, you want to go directly to the buyer, not through Elance. The clients who come to me don't go looking at Elance. 
And by the way, Elance is not in many ways that hard to compete with. God forbid you needed a brain operation. The first surgeon charges 9000 The second charges 8700 but his education isn't quite as good. The third surgeon has a place called Brains R Us and charges $200. You going to go there because it's cheap like Elance? No. You're never going to go there. For a service business, competing on price is really a stupid strategy. And I tell freelancers, I don't mean to be crude about it, but anyone who tries to get work on Elance is stupid. It's a total waste of time. You don't acknowledge them. Not now. But I tell my fee, remember that guy who said he wanted to pay 35 for a letter? People would call me and they'd say, what did you charge for a brochure? And I'd say, well, 2000 2000 i got a copywriter here who can do it for $80. And I'd say, why are you talking to me? <laughs> That's good. All right, here's a question from Jason. How do you go about explaining to prospects that graphic-rich ads that don't give any information or have a call to action are ineffectual in comparison to properly written ads? So many people think that if an ad is funny or looks neat, it will sell. We know that isn't true. So how would you explain that to a potential business client without hurting your feelings? He's not going to like my answer. My answer is go with clients who already believe it. In other words, go find clients that run the kind of ads that you as a copy connoisseur and a copywriter like and think are good. You look at this guy's ad and say, this guy knows what he's doing. That's your potential client. If I'm Omaha Steaks and I'm doing a direct mail, I don't rent the list of vegetarian times and send out a mailing that says, don't eat vegetables, steak is good. I find lists of meat eaters. You want as potential clients the boardrooms of the world, the conscious ones of the world, the Nightingale Conants of the world. You want people that believe in and use your kind of copy. You don't want to go to somebody who does pretty image ads and say, did you know that? That's stupid. I have a much better way. As Tom Peters said in In Search of Excellence, people don't argue with their own data. So I never try to convince anybody. Is there a simple, quick, and cheap way to protect your intellectual property? How do you make sure the work you do doesn't end up in other people's hands? I never take any precaution. I mean, I only send my work to my client, and I don't send it to them until they've paid half in advance. And further, they don't own the work until they pay the whole fee. So I don't feel that that's a danger, really. Here's a question from Murray Hudson. I read often that the most common questions copywriters ask is, how do you find good, profitable clients? I'm discouraged when I hear legendary copywriters say, if a copywriter can't find clients, he isn't qualified to call himself a copywriter. In your opinion, what is the best method or system for attracting good new clients and generating profitable work? First of all, what he said about the senior copywriters, I've heard that too, and it really ticks me off. Senior copywriters will say, well, if you're any good, clients will come to you. If you have to go out and get clients, you can't be a freelance copywriter. That is utter nonsense. The truth is people aren't going to buy your mousetrap until they find out about it. So you have to market and promote yourself actively. And the details of this, of course, are covered in the book I mentioned earlier, Secrets of a Freelance Writer. But for example, I tell all novice writers, get a website up. And they say, well, do I have to have a website to start? I said, you don't have to, but why wouldn't you? It costs you a few hundred dollars to get a website up. You need to reserve a domain name. One of the ways that people find beginning copyright in today's technological era is they Google it. Now, I don't optimize my site for Google. That's not how I find clients. But if I was a beginner today, I'd get a domain name. I'd search engine optimize it by using the right, what I call magnetic meta tags. That's basically my term uh, made up for meta tags that are keyword rich. I have a search engine optimized site, and I would drive traffic 
through SEO and maybe Google AdWords and some other ways and postcards to my site and capture the email names. And there's ways to do that, which we could talk about. And then I would quickly build a list of people who were interested in hiring freelance copywriters or that needed copy. And I would communicate with those people. We couldn't do this in the old days. I would communicate with those people at least once a month via email. So let's talk a little bit about the differences in online copy compared to offline copy. I know that the purpose of an online website is to capture a name, but what about when it comes to the straight copy that's selling a product or service? Are these differences things that whisper rather than things that scream? What I tell people is online and offline copywriting are much more alike than they are different. They're mostly alike. There are only a few minor differences. However, the few minor differences are very, very important, and you have to know them. One of the differences, of course, is what we mentioned earlier, keywords. You have to know what the keywords are for the product you're selling and optimize your site for it. Another one is that, like in the old days, if we were doing a print sales letter and we had a four-page letter, we'd start to ask for the order, you know, mail the reply card, call our toll-free number, at the bottom half of page four of the four-page letter. We do that online, but we also ask for it at the beginning. You've heard the expression, put the first link above the fold. That means have a response link to your order form, whether it's an email or a landing page, have a response link to the order form on the first screen and have one probably every screen. That's another major difference. So you have to know the half a dozen rules that make it different. So you have to know the differences and use them, but the basic writing style is pretty similar. Okay, here's another question from Murray Hudson. In your opinion, what is the best way to leverage your time in order to increase your income as a copywriter? For example, work with larger clients or clients who run ads more often or send more letters so you can justify higher fees, specialize within an industry so you can work from copy you have already written from another other client, etc. The easiest way, he named it, is to work for repeat clients. Have, as we said earlier, 80% or more of your business come from repeat clients. Therefore, you need clients, of course, that have multiple assignments, and some do and some don't. When you do that, exactly what he said, a lot of the times you'll get an assignment from a repeat client, let's say to write a letter or an email, and you open your files for that client that are well organized in your hard drive so you don't have to spend an hour searching for them. You know, they're in a subdirectory folder, and you open it up, and you say, hmm, that's pretty similar. I mean, I've had situations where I'm doing something for a repeat client, and the guy doesn't remember that his predecessor did something like that four years ago, and we never used it, and now he wants to go out and mail it. And I'll open it, and some of it has to be changed and updated, and it could be made better, but 80% of it's already done. And you don't have that when it's a first-time client. And then if you can't work that much with repeat clients, you work in similar industries. I do a lot of work in IT. I used to do a lot of work in the chemical process industry. I do a lot of work in publications, consumer and business-to-business newsletters. So you know how to do the promotion. What's hard is when someone comes to you and says, I'm from a hospice and we want to promote our hospice. I don't know anything about hospice marketing. I have to learn it all. That's going to take me a lot of time. So I often turn those down nowadays. I like to work with businesses where I really understand the business. I often frustratingly say to my wife, if only my clients would give me good information, I could easily write good copy for them. How do you extract information from your clients, the hidden nuggets, that you need in order to produce good copy for them. For example, most business owners have no idea about why their business is different, better than their competitors. How do you help your clients to develop differences that you can illustrate in your copy? What this fellow says, it's so true. I did a letter for an insurance guy, and I did the first draft of his letter, and he said, oh, I'm very happy, 
but there's some things I want you to maybe change. And he says, by the way, I'm emailing you a PDF of my sales brochure. And I've never seen this document before, despite the fact that I asked him, send me all your literature. And there in that brochure were gems. Unfortunately, the transfer of information from client to copywriter is imperfect, and no matter how much we try to systematize it, it remains imperfect. Yet, you should try to systematize it as much as possible. So, for example, one of the things I do is I have a checklist on my website on Bly.com. It's a reprint of an article I wrote on, here's what I need to write your copy. And it lists 20 or 30 things they should send me, and it lists 30 or 40 questions they need to answer. And I actually enclose a reprint of that article anytime someone asks for information on my copywriting services. That article is in the package. So I let them know in advance what I'll be doing. You need to know what you're after when you're interviewing the client. I like to use my checklist to gather the brute facts about his product or service. No need for me to spend six hours discussing with him the specifications of his pump if that's in some catalog somewhere. Just give me the catalog. What I want to spend my time with, because client's time is limited. They can't spend 14 hours with you on the phone. But if I have an hour with a client or two hours or a half hour, I want to ask them hard questions that's going to help me write the copy, which typically might be, as you said, how is my product different or better? Or if I'm focusing on the prospect, what's the prospect's biggest concern, which is a great question. Experienced copywriters ask this all the time. Some variations of the question, well, what's the one thing that's keeping your prospect up at night that your product could help them address? That's a great question. As far as the other question of how is it different, he said, well, clients don't know. So I'll ask a client, how is it different? And if they tell me, well, it's not really different or they don't know, I'll say, well, then why on earth would anyone buy yours instead of your competitors? And then there's usually silence, and then they start to talk slowly, and they sort of sound out for themselves for the first time like they never thought about it, the differences. They'll go, well, we not only deliver it to their door, but we unpack it and we set up the system and turn it on and we don't leave till it's on and we remove the box and the packing and then if they want to return it within 60 days we'll come there and pack it up for them and bring it back I say does anyone else do that? No I guess they don't but they never thought of it when I asked them they say, well my monitor is the same as everyone else's so you have to probe and dig Do your copywriting clients as you get started with them and you create some success for them with your copy do you fall into the position where they're asking you for more business advice than the copywriting, like more marketing, consulting? I mean, it seems like it's a natural, inevitable well, yes thing. No, the rule of thumb is smaller businesses will tend to need and want from their copywriters more marketing, consulting, and advice. Larger businesses, you're writing for Boardroom, which I do. You're writing for Agora Publishing, which I do. You're writing for Nightingale Conant, which I do. They don't need marketing help. They prefer that kind of client myself. I don't want to be a marketing consultant. I want to be a copywriter. Having said that, there are many people out there who prefer to be marketing advisors and consultants, and if you want to do that kind of thing, just work for small and medium-sized companies rather than giants, or work for companies that are not marketing-driven. You might work for a company that's a big widget manufacturer, and they're a large company, but they're not that sophisticated about marketing, and then they will ask for your advice. Like, I just did a project for a guy selling, I mentioned earlier, this professional association, and I just wrote what he asked me to, but I realized clearly when I was writing it that he doesn't know the model for making money online. And so the question is, how do I get that to him? Right. How many copywriters are the big publishing companies like Boardroom and Agora working with? I don't know their numbers. I think it's in the low dozens. Low dozens. Not that many, huh? Like, Boardroom tends to work with only a handful. Yeah. But Agora Publishing, which has many more products... Agora works probably with the largest number, boardroom with the smallest, and the others are in between. 
what kind of stuff can you reveal? Like, what kind of projects do you work with on Boardroom? Are you doing magalogs or online well, promotion? Have, Boardroom has a small core of writers that do their magalogs, and I am not part of that group. Sometimes clients will slot you into a specialty for them. I do for Boardroom, although I have done some mail for them. I do online promotions for them. The online stuff. Right. Are they using audio in any of their online promotions? As far as I know, they're not. But that's definitely something that I can bring to them with you. I would love to test it. I think it could really enhance some online promotions is having the straight copy with some intensive audio with it as well. Well, next time I'm at one of their meetings, I'll mention it. They do get approached by a lot of people who say, I can help you do this or that, and they're very wary. They really try to insulate themselves and don't want to be contacted. All right. All right, this gentleman, Murray, has got some other good questions. Do you have a favorite letter opening that you fall back onto time and time again? I certainly have a toolkit of headline leads and formulas, and in my book, The Copywriter's Handbook, I do have a chapter on direct mail, and I sort of list my favorite 15 ways to open a letter, but I don't have a single one that's really my favorite. I do like very much Problem Solution. Do you know who Jerry Hunsinger is? No, tell He's me. one of the top, top fundraising copywriters, and he's a master of this. So he did a letter for Red Cross that I think is the quintessential problem-solution letter. It says, Dear Mr. Jones or Dear Mr. Bly, someday, comma, you may need the Red Cross. That's the problem. Next paragraph is, but right now, comma, the Red Cross needs you. That's the solution. You give money, they'll be there when there's a flood in your town. And I use problem leads a lot. I use testimonial leads and quotation leads a lot. For example, quote, the other day I was speaking to a client and he told me, oh, God, it's so hard to find a web designer that not only understands design and programming but also can help me make money on the web. Next paragraph, do you have that same problem? If so, I want to introduce you to an interactive agency that can help you. I like things that make the first paragraph a quote or even a testimonial or a problem. I'll often say, when Tim Harris had to design a new chemical plant for Pfizer with 600 processes mixed in one, he knew it would be a big job. That's where he turned to Pipeflow software. I like that kind of thing. How about legalities? I know you're working with the larger publishers, and they have whole legal departments to review copy to make sure no one gets in trouble. But let's say these new copywriters, and they're working with smaller businesses, and they're using testimonials, and they're using claims. Talk to them about what issues they need to be aware of when they're writing that copy, and if they go over the line, what some of the consequences can be regarding that. Well, there's two things they should do. First of all, they should go to my website, bly.com, click on methodology, click on terms and conditions, and look at my agreement. In my agreement, it says, hey, even though Bob makes every effort to make your copy compliant with the law, he's not a lawyer, and you, Mr. Client, are responsible for that, because the client dictates the content. So I tell every client their agreement they sign in return says I have no responsibility for the liability and the legality of the copy. And make sure they sign off on that. And make sure they sign off and approve that. The second thing though is common sense can go a long way which means first don't do something that is illegal or that strikes you as illegal or immoral. Second if it seems wrong to you it probably is. Third, if you think the client is crossing the line, tell him or her so. If she doesn't back down, you can refuse to write the piece, or you can send an email saying, I'm including this paragraph at your insistence, though I am almost 100% convinced this will get you in trouble with the FDA or the SEC, and I wholly urge against it. Have that on file. Who are some of your mentors that you look up to, some of the guys you really learn from, even the old-timers like Claude Hopkins or Clyde Bedell? Well, in terms of people that are old-timers, there is an old-timer who's largely forgotten today, 
Paul Bringe, I don't know if you know him, B-R-I-N-G-E, who was a terrific copywriter. Another one, Ed McLean. You know Ed McLean? No. He wrote the classic letter for Newsweek that said, if the list upon which I found your name is any indication, this is not the first, nor will it be the last letter you receive asking you to subscribe to a magazine. How do you and spell his last name? McLean is M-C-L-E-A-N. And he has great books he wrote on direct marketing that are out of print and impossible to get. More contemporary, Sig Rosenblum, who recently retired. Milt Pierce, who's retired. The name Milt Pierce, I've heard it over and over again. Who did he write for? He wrote mainly for magazines. There was a time in the 60s and 70s and 80s where the big copywriters wrote mainly subscription packages for magazines. Today, it's more information products and newsletters, but then it was magazines, and he was one of the top magazine writers. He wrote a package that I don't think today would work, but 40 years ago, he wrote 144 ways better homes and gardens can save you time and money, and it was like an unbeaten control for 17 years or 20 years. So Milt Pierce, Ed McLean. How about Eugene Schwartz? I never had much contact with him. I think he's certainly one of the great copywriters, especially for books. I have read a lot of his promotions, and I have a lot of the books that he sold through his instant improvement company. I actually only spoke with him one or two times. I think I interviewed him for an article I wrote once. He was a brilliant guy. But you see the large mailers using Magalogs. Are Magalogs outpulling the standard number 10 long letter format? Generally for financial newsletters and health newsletters, Magalogs are, for most publishers, outpulling number 10s, although it really varies with each individual publisher, like Porter Stansberry's Pirate Investor. All their packages, all their controls are number 10s. Some other Agora divisions, it's mixed. At Martin Weiss, I think it's mainly Magalogs now. And Magalogs have been a very successful format for a long time, and the reason they work is that if written and designed correctly, and usually they aren't, but when they're done right, they come across as what we call an advertorial. They look like they're a report on how to do something useful rather than some guy trying to sell you something, and that's the power within them. Let's talk about the money. Let's say a copywriter does what they need. They're the 10% out of the 100 who studies, who gets out there, who sends out 500 letters to potential clients. What have you seen from some of your students in the past or students of other copywriters, the income potential, and compare that to the time they're putting in? Are they limited if they're not farming out their work? Obviously, you're limited by your time. Well, it's like the dentist thing. You're not billing unless you're drilling and filling. There's an upper limit, theoretically, on what you can earn. The top-earning copywriter is generally recognized as a solo copywriter. That means he's really a freelance copywriter. He makes his money not from publishing newsletters, not from selling information products, but from writing copy for clients. Clayton Makepeace is generally regarded as the highest paid copywriter, and he reports earning on a bad year a million dollars a year, on a good year three million dollars a year, and that's from mailing fees and royalties mainly. So he's writing strictly for a large consumer direct marketer selling information products and nutritional supplements and things of that nature. That's all he writes. He's not interested in anything else. Because the money is in the mailing. Right. So that's where you can make a nap mark. And he has some students of his, I can't mention by name, but at least two or three of them are making a million dollars a year and a couple more are making half a million dollars a year or more. But if you're not working on that, well, how else can you make big money? One thing that people do is they start out as copywriters 
and then they decide to have their own products and they become rich. Like Bill Bonner at Agora Publishing is a great copywriter, but you can't call him and he makes millions of dollars a year. He's fabulously wealthy, but you can't say he's a freelance copywriter or even a copywriter. He's a business owner. He's an entrepreneur. Bill, did he start out as a copywriter before yeah, he started Agora? I don't have his history in front of me. I've read it, but it's in my memory. But I think he started out as a copywriter for fundraising or for publishing, something like that. He made a lot of money when he switched. He tells a story. He said he started working for this company and writing their letters. And he said, then I realized you could write a letter to a stranger and they'd send you money. What's a better gimmick than that? So do you encourage or teach or educate in some of your products and courses that let the copywriter know if they can master the skill and do somewhat great with it, you can make a good living on it, but you can make a fortune selling and controlling your own products that you sell with your copy? I do have products, but I'm primarily of the old model of Clayton Makepeace. I teach people how to be what we would call a contract copywriter. And people will say, well, why would you want to do that? You can make so much more. Hey, you do what you want to do. I do what I want to do. Yeah, you don't want to mess with the business. Well, I actually do because I do have a product line. But primarily, forgive the cliche, that's not what floats my boat. I like being a freelance copywriter. I'm not making $10 million a year, but I'm closing in on a million a year. I'm making six, seven hundred thousand a year. And that's more than sufficient to meet my needs. And I have to work very hard for it. I have friends who to leave copywriting, devote all your time to selling products. And I'll say, you do that, and you spend your day doing things I'm not interested in. I had one friend. I said, well, what do you do all day? He goes, well, my main thing is I'm constantly emailing and on the phone and trying to set up as many affiliate deals as I can. I don't want to do that. I want to write copy. Also, the products that I can develop and sell are somewhat limited based on my own expertise. So I get to work on things as a freelance copywriter I would not work on for my own. Like, I just wrote a report for an investment client on carbon sequestering, which is basically how a company that's polluting the air can get away with it by investing in a reforestation project. They can get credits for the forest they plant will build. And the company I wrote about has a system of carbon dioxide sequestering based on growing plankton in the ocean. That kind of stuff is really fascinating to me. I get to write about gold mining, which is interesting to me. Tell me about the gold mining. I've done a number of promotions for gold publications. It's a subset of the investment community is gold bugs. I have a history of having had some very successful promotions. I've worked for Doug Casey. I've worked for Paul Sarnoff. I've worked for James DeGeorgia doing gold promotions. The gold bugs, is it a hungry market? Yeah, it's a hungry market. These people are really interested in it. Investors, hard money. People who buy financial newsletters are an information-hungry market. And that's a tip that the great Gary Albert gives. He says, look for hungry markets. Don't go to markets that are blasé and are not really information buyers. Go to markets that are hungry for stuff. And it's very good advice. And there's a reason there may be a lot of action, a lot of people selling to that market, but there's a reason for it. Yeah, because they buy. I had the idea years ago to start a newsletter or some type of product on coping with infertility. But just because someone's trying to have a baby, they may desperately want to have a baby, but they're not necessarily information seekers. When we were trying to have a baby, we went through infertility. My wife probably had like 83 books in our bedroom, and we would go to these meetings of the infertility groups, and she'd meet other people. She'd say, oh, have you read this? They don't want to read any books. The lay people don't understand that. Not only do you have to have someone who's interested in your subject, gold or investment, they have to be an information seeker. Do you have experience with renting lists and mailing lists? I have a huge amount of experience in the list business. I've never been a broker, but I used to be an advertiser and I rented mailing lists. And of course, I've been guiding clients on list rentals for 25 years. I have a long-running relationship with some of the biggest list brokers. So I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty well-versed in mailing lists. So you've got the SRDS, a huge compilation of mailing lists. Right. And just because it's in there, that doesn't mean it's a good list or an ethical list or an honest list, does it? Is there a lot of fraud? Never rent a list 
directly from the source. You should always go to a broker because the broker can spend full time being aware of what lists are available because they can amortize the cost of that investment and research over their hundred clients. You can't duplicate that. So my advice is to find a good list broker and I have the ones that I use. They're listed on my website if you want to look at them. And you go to Bly.com and click on vendors and then click under mailing list and there they are. Merit Direct, Edith Roman, Carnegie, these are the best list brokers. I always go to the best professional. You don't go to freaking Elance for a copywriter, forgive my language. You get in the pond scum. You mean to insult anyone who advertises on Elance, but get out of there. You want to deal with the best copywriter, the best graphic designer. You want to deal with the best list broker, and they will do the job of listening to what your market is, looking at your promotion, and then matching the best list for that. The list broker only makes money if you actually rent the list. If you go to a list broker and they give you a bunch of list recommendations, basically they email or fax you or FedEx you a set of what's called data cards in terms of the list they recommend, and you go, mm, you know what, we're not going to go ahead with this, you don't owe them a dime. If you do go ahead, you're not paying extra for those lists. You're paying the same fee to the list broker as you would to rent directly from the owner. The commission to the list broker comes from the owner. People don't realize this. It costs you nothing to use a list broker. So your vendors that you have up on the side, these people are are genuinely interested in your best interest. They're not going to send you rate cards on lists that they may know are crap. No, because a list owner would do that, or even maybe a list manager, but usually a list owner. You call up Hog Magazine. Let's say you're mailing to Hog Farmers, and you say, should I rent your list? What are they going to say? They go, oh, yeah, our list is great. They're not being objective. Right. They want to sell you their list. A list broker has no vested interest in selling you any particular list. They know you're only going to return to them if your mailing makes money. No. No, they want to give you the best list for you. So their advice is totally objective. All right, you see mainly in the SRDS minimum orders 5,000 names. Can that be negotiated with list brokers? Well, everything's negotiable. In many cases, that is not. So your choice is either see if you can negotiate it, or what some people do is they'll rent the 5,000, hold 3,000 back, and just test 2,000. Now, you've paid for the names, but you haven't paid for mailing. You know what I'm saying? All right. You can offer to someone listening for the end of yes. this. Yes, okay. Here's what you do. You go to www www.beasandboyly.com, C-O-M, forward slash reports. And if you go there, you can get not only a free subscription to my monthly e-newsletter, the direct response letter, you'll get four of my marketing reports with a value of over $100, about 200 pages of material. That's the end of this interview with Bob Bly. I encourage you to go check out his websites and his fantastic resources. It's Michael with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com in another bonus tip. How would you like to turn your $28 book or e-book or even a concept in your head into to a $3,900 information product. I'll provide you the secrets on how to do this if you'd like a completely free 30-day trial of my system for turning your simple book or even just a concept in your mind into an information product that you can sell for $97, $197, or even as much as $3,900 or more. This system includes a whole range of tricks and tips to help you pack your audio program full of great stories that take control of your listeners' brains. My information product creation system comes with my personal guarantee that you'll create an information product worth from $97 to $497 that's designed to sell like hotcakes. This is a 30-day free trial. If you'd like information on this, please email me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line, write in all caps, $28 book, in all 
I'll email you information on how to turn your $28 book or even a concept in your mind into a $3,900 information product. Hi, this is Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff HardToFindSeminars.com. Here is another bonus tip in a valuable service that I offer to select clients. If you can talk into an ordinary telephone, you can be selling your own high-priced audio programs in as little as seven days. This is the easiest way on earth to create a series of powerful audio recordings for your own information product. I call you on an ordinary telephone and interview you live on a series of related hot topics about your niche subject. I take care of all the editing, all the technical stuff, and I give you the finished MP3s or WAV files in audio transcripts. I only have time to give this deluxe personalized service to a few more carefully selected clients. If you're interested in developing and creating your own valuable information product that you could have complete in as short as seven days and be selling for as high as $300, $500, even $3,900, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, please write info product information in all capital. Make sure I have your name and a way to contact you by phone and we can talk about your specific ideas. Or you may call me at 858-274-7851. Hi, it's Michael Sinoff here with another bonus tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. It's called an audio infomercial. Your audio infomercial, which I create for you, will sell more products of yours faster, easier, and for less cost than any conventional advertising method, and I guarantee it 100%. Imagine catching yourself at concert pitch talking about what makes your business or your product service unique, what makes it special. Imagine taking a professional recording of that perfect sales presentation that I create for you and giving it to your prospect as an audio CD or an internet download from your website. I can do this for you faster than you ever thought possible with my personalized audio informational recording service. If you're interested in this unique service, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, in all capitals, write audio infomercial, and I will get back with you with more information.